Hot starts all over the place and a PED suspension. We'll talk about that and more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April 29th. It's show number 22 of the 2016 fantasy baseball season. It's also the last Friday news and comment edition for the season, but it's not our last show. We're adding our featured guest expert interview from Tuesdays to our Friday editions and keeping Baseball HQ Radio going right through the pennant races to the end of the season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and this is another great Friday show for you. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at the PED suspension of the Marlins' D. Gordon, Cincinnati outfielder Adam Duval, and more. And from the American League, Jock Thompson will talk about a whole bunch of exciting pitching debuts. Blake Snell in Tampa, Jose Barrios in Minnesota, Sean Manea in Oakland, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our playing time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at speculating on a new starting outfield in Arizona, as well as the long-lost Mike Zunino in Seattle. In our frequent flyers comment, Alex Becky looks at Minnesota outfielder Oswaldo Arcia and Detroit starting pitcher Michael Fulmer. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Greg Fishwick looks at four matchups, including a Saturday American League tilt pitting the Yankees right-hander Michael Pineda at Fenway against red-hot righty Rick Porcello of the Red Sox, a Sunday battle of right-handers in the National League, Max Scherzer of Washington at Carlos Martinez of St. Louis. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about Bizarro Daily Fantasy Baseball. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Another PED suspension. <sighs> we gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report, and on the phone, our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Good to be here. Of course, Nick, uh, we're here to talk about the National League and the news, and no bigger news this week than D. Gordon. PED suspension, he's out for 80 games, and uh, this is really going to set off a chain reaction in what was already a pretty thin infield in Miami. Yeah, it sure will set off a chain reaction. I mean, D. Gordon creates a huge hole in, in the infield in Miami. In fact, if you look at our depth chart, there was nobody listed behind him because uh, as long as he was in there, nobody else was expected to play. So uh, hard to know exactly what will happen with D. Gordon out. Uh, Martin Prado can play second base. Uh, Derek Dietrich can play second base. And so my, our guess is, the best guess is that Derek Dietrich will see a lot more playing time. Uh, and Derek Dietrich, the guy that uh, we talked about earlier, I think, in the year, a, a guy was kind of interesting. Stephen Nickran kept pointing out as a decent bench bat and now looks like he might get some at-bats. Uh, with 400 bats, a guy who could hit 20 home runs and uh, actually has the speed to steal some bases, but they, uh, they've not let him loose on the base paths yet. Um, the, the knock on Derek Dietrich is he can't hit left-handers, and so I think we might see some, uh, maybe Charles Johnson will get some playing time when, when a left-hander's in the lineup instead of Dietrich, but that would be my best guess is the way, the way they're going to go. Yeah, when I looked at it, I thought the same thing. The obvious choice is, uh, is to drop Dietrich in there. I, of course, it creates also a hole at the top of the batting order that they're going to have to figure out how to fill, and we'll have to see what they do about that. Uh, Prado's not a typical top hitter. Dietrich's certainly not a typical a top-of-the-order type hitter. A three oh six on-base percentage type guy is not going to get the job done up there. And uh, a little bit of speed, but I think there's uh, more questions than answers right now as far as the Marlins go, except, like you said, I think we can agree that Dietrich will see a lot more playing time. Again, it remains to be seen whether he'll be playing at third or second because Prado, uh, Prado can play at first or second, so can Dietrich. So they may jiggle around until they figure out what their best bet is out there. I, I would go with Prado at second if I was them, just on experience, but we shall see. And then Chris Johnson, the wild card, is, as you mentioned, is going to be in there uh, probably uh, when they have to face left-handed pitching because Dietrich's really a, a bad, bad hitter versus left-handers. He's a very bad hitter versus left-handers, and so 
I, I really doubt that they'll give him much. Uh, they may give him a couple opportunities, but he's only had two at-bats against left-handers so far this year. If you look back over last year, you'll see that uh, uh, he did very poorly with platoon splits over the last uh, the last uh, two seasons. 176 against left-handers and only 17 at-bats in, in 2015. 184 in 2014. So uh, a guy who's struggling to get to the Mendoza line against left-handers uh, overall. So my guess is he won't see much playing time against left-handed pitchers. It's kind of a, a a real shame for a lot of fantasy owners, of course. Uh, D. Gordon was a first-round pick in a lot of drafts, certainly a second-round pick in almost every draft at worst. Uh, went for a lot of money in most cash drafts, uh, auction drafts, and this basically is going to destroy a lot of seasons for fantasy players. It is indeed. I mean, uh, uh, D. Gordon owners are certainly going to be scrapping today to uh, to figure out a way to uh, to regroup at second base. And if, if I were in a league, I'd be calling the D. Gordon owner and seeing if I've got anybody I could trade him to help out at second base and seeing what I could do. And if you're rebuilding, it might not be a bad uh, time to contact about getting D. Gordon on your roster uh, for future years because uh, once he comes back, there's no reason to suspect he's going to be any the worse for wear. Before we leave this topic, Nick, were you surprised D. Gordon, of all the people that, that you could suspect of being a PED user, he just doesn't seem to fit the profile? No, he doesn't seem to fit the profile, and I guess what that tells us is we just really don't know what's going on out there, and it's, uh, it just really is a, a stunner. Although we have to say he was he was a failed prospect pretty much until 2013. All of a sudden, seemed to turn his career around, uh, started getting on base, started hitting the ball harder, uh, being more durable, all these kind of things. So maybe, as you say, we always think of big power hitters being steroid users, being PED users, but there are other aspects to PED use, and maybe this is the tip of another sad iceberg that's going to be coming. Uh, in Cincinnati, Nick, uh, they have a new primary left fielder, Adam Duval. Manager Brian Price says is going to get the lion's share of playing time in the hay out and left. Uh, this was covered in playing time today at Baseball HQ. What do we know about Adam Duval? Adam Duval is a, is a good power guy, not so much a good BA guy. If you look at what we've got so far this year, two home runs and 58 at bats, a 241 batting average, uh, excellent power, power index of 215, uh, XPX of 168. So this guy can this guy can really bring it. Uh, the question will be whether he can keep his uh, his batting average up. And in fact, if you look over the last uh, look at the line in the last week, uh, four hits and 21 at bats, and only a 38 percent contact rate. So a lot of swing and miss in Duval's game, uh, but also a chance for some for some power uh, coming out of it. So our, our guess is uh, is that Duval will hit uh, maybe top the 20 home run mark, but bat uh, somewhere around 220. Yeah, and we're giving him credit for about 52 RBIs, and that strikes me as a little high considering the uh, relative weakness of the Reds lineup and this swing and miss propensity. He's at 59% contact rate for the season. You mentioned 38% for the week. That means he's striking out four times out of every 10 plate appearances. And gosh, if you're doing that, and I've said this before on the show, every time you strike out, you can't do anything. You can't drive in a run. You can't score a run. You can't do anything. And that's why I'm always leery about these very high strikeout guys. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, unless they've got uh, prodigious power, uh, and Duvall probably doesn't quite fall into that category, uh, then uh, then I worry about these high strikeout guys too. On the other hand, if you need 23 home runs the rest of the way, that's our projection. Uh, 23 home runs could move you three or four spots in the lineup and 388 at-bats out of a 6,000 at-bat team. Maybe the 227 batting average doesn't really kill you, but boy, <laughs> you know, when I look at it. And we should mention also Adam Duvall's 27 years old, so it's not like he's a, a hot young prospect of 22 who can grow into his skills, learn how to hit better, these kind of things. At age 27, it's, uh, it's not un- out of the question, but it certainly seems unlikely that he's going to be able to develop uh, a skill at the major league level. Right, yeah, very definitely. I mean, he's, he's past the point where you expect him to suddenly blossom. I mean, he's young enough that something could happen, but uh, his history says that uh, raising his contract rate is, is not a, a likely thing. At Baseball HQ, our columnist Stephen Nickrand writes the starting pitcher buyer's guide column and, and the batting buyer's guide column, which we'll come to in a second. He's got a couple of columns this week in those two areas called Early Surprises. And one of the early surprises for Stephen was Noah Syndergaard, the right-hander for the Mets. And uh, it's no surprise, I don't think, that he's pitching well. But what Stephen says is that he's actually pushing Clayton Kershaw as the game's most dominant starting pitcher based on his early 16 returns. Noah Syndergaard does look terrific. He looks fantastic so far. I mean, here's a guy with a 
with, with currently a 12.8 DOM rate, uh, 1.4 walks per nine innings, a, hitting a velocity of 98 miles an hour, uh, just absolutely tremendous. 38 strikeouts and four walks and 27 innings pitched, a 1.69 ERA. Uh, so far, really, he was, he was very good last year, but really pushing it this year as a 23-year-old, uh, those are unbelievable numbers. You know, and I look at his actual performance to date, uh, 169 ERA, uh, whip of 098. He's had four starts. He's only got two wins. Tell me again that wins is a useful category. <laughs> it's one of those things that's really hard to predict. There's no reason. He doesn't have any losses, but, you know, to get a win, your team's got to score runs and the bullpen's got to protect the lead. And so uh, certainly no Syndergaard is not doing anything wrong, but uh, the wins are not piling up at the moment couple of other things to notice about Noah Syndergaard and really like a 66% first pitch uh, strike percentage. That's really good. Uh, we always look for anything uh, two-thirds or higher. And his swinging strike rate is 17%. And I talked about this uh, the other week with uh, Jason Collette on our Tuesday Tout edition, actually earlier this week. And I asked him about the importance of that swinging strike rate and does it matter whether a pitcher's getting swinging strikes or, or fooling them by, by getting called strikes. And he said he liked swinging strikes better because it, uh, it means that even if you're not fooling them, you're, you're, be, you're able to throw the ball past them. And that's a very great skill for a pitcher to have. It is indeed a great skill for a pitcher to have. And, you know, it also means if the umpire's having a bad day that uh, it doesn't depend on the umpire as long as they're swinging at the ball. And we should also mention what Steven said about Noah Syndergaard, the 60% ground ball rate. So if you add up, uh, looks like about 30% strikeouts, 60% ground ball outs, it's no wonder his ERA and whip are so good. Yeah, very definitely. That means the guys are not hitting the ball in the, in the air very often against him. So very few home runs indeed so far this year. Uh, I think his home run rate is exactly zero. And that's a very good home run rate to have. Uh, our columnist, Doug Dennis, writes an excellent bullpen buyer's guide column. And this week, he looks at bullpen arms by expected ERAs. And then there's an even further um, abstracted uh, met metric we call projected expected ERAs, which is you take their projected skills and figure out what their expected ERAs would be. And one name that popped up with good numbers so far this year was Jeremy Jeffress in Milwaukee. But Doug had a worrying note about Jeremy Jeffress. Yeah, one more note about Jeremy Jeffers. But the other thing to, to, to look at with Jeremy Jeffers is one of those guys who, who kind of snuck into a closer role. Back to the baseball forecaster, you know, and, and we said an, up, an upside of 30 saves for Jeremy Jeffers. It was a matter of getting the, uh, getting the playing time. At this point, he's got, uh, he's got six. So uh, six saves in April with a, with a couple of days to go. Uh, he surely could wind up with 30. The worrying note about Jeremy Jeffers at this point, everything looks pretty good, is that his dom rate has not been real high. Uh, at this point, a dom rate of 6.2 strikeouts per nine innings, you'd like to see it higher than that. Uh, but he's only walking one guy per nine innings, so that certainly helps. And um, what a 3.12 ERA and an XERA of 3.2, so really kind of performing right about where we expect him to. Uh, so Jeremy Jeffers looks to me like a solid, a solid performer, uh, given what he's done in the month of April, and could hang on to that closer role throughout the season. Now, uh, returning to this idea of first pitch strikes, he's under 60% so far this year, which is, to me, uh, one of the reasons he's probably not getting the strikeouts we might uh, expect and hope for. And uh, although his velocity is up in the mid-90s, so that should be good, but he's also getting a lot of ground balls, which is, which is reassuring. If they're putting the ball in play, as you just said, regarding Syndergaard, even when they're putting the ball into play, they're not capable of doing a ton of damage. Right, you know, they're putting the ball in play on the ground, and, and certainly some of those things go through for hits, but... Uh as you said, not a, not a ton of damage. Stephen Nickrand, returning to his early surprise columns in the Batter Buyer's Guide, took a look at Dexter Fowler of the Cubs. And, geez, Nick, how about Dexter Fowler? Three home runs, 15 RBIs. He's got a couple of bags, 18 runs scored, and he's hitting 256. That ain't right. That's 356. And he's hitting 350. i got to do that whole thing again. He's got three home runs, 15 RBIs, a couple of stolen bases, 18 runs scored, and a three fifty six batting average. And, of course, the question when we see something like this is, can he keep it up? What is Stephen Nickrand's conclusion on that question? Well, the other thing to look at with Dexter Fowler is an OPS of 1103, uh, second only to Bryce Harper in the National League. And so, uh, no, he can't keep it up at that level. I mean, his hit rate right now is, is at uh, 48%. 
Uh, and we know that's going to come down. Nobody gets a 48% hit rate throughout the season. But the base skills are, are very, very strong. An 18% walk rate, a 75% contact rate, 0.88i, 162 hard contact index, uh, 145 BPV. You know, and after a second half, that doubled his BPV last year from 41 to 75. So, you know, Dexter Fowler is a guy that we've liked for a long time at Baseball HQ and said he had the skills and, and never quite has reached his breakout year. Maybe he's going to break out this year at age 30. Stranger things have happened. Now, on the stolen base question, that's so dependent on how a manager's philosophy works. And uh, I don't remember the, the uh, Rays under Joe Madden being a particularly aggressive stolen base team, but am I misremembering that? No, I, not that I, I don't think so. And at this point, uh, Dexter Fowler is not having a huge uh, uh, FBO percent. He's only 7%, so they're not really turning him loose on the base pads. Uh, his, he has better speed than that. He's shown better speed than that in the past. Uh, but somebody's going to have to let him loose in order for him to steal a bunch of bags. And it may be that they look at him and say, geez, we got Chris Bryant hitting here. we got this very powerful lineup behind Dexter Fowler. We don't need to have him steal bases. He can trot home on the home run. Yeah, very, it's very possible. I mean, last year, 17 home runs, 20 stolen bases. Uh, this year, the home runs might uh, exceed the stolen bases. And if you can keep that B.A. up, that makes him an extremely valuable ball player. Well, we're projecting 15 stolen bases uh, the rest of the way for a 17 total and 13 home runs for 16 total, which might be a little disappointing considering this hot start, but uh, the analysts at BaseballHQ.com are not quite as optimistic as uh, his owners might be, especially uh, looking for an 815 OPS the rest of the way. And Nick, a couple of weeks ago in Master Notes, I looked at all the OPS leaders, and uh, Dexter Fowler was uh, at the right behind Bryce Harper then too and uh, I thought then and I think now I don't think he can he can sustain a record anything like this because it so depends on this 48% hit rate and if you drop that down to you know something more usual 33 34% that's a third of those balls that are going to be outs that are currently not being outs and that's going to have a really really big impact on his ability to generate those kind of stats yeah very definitely I, I agree with you on that and, and certainly as that comes down uh, you know, we're, we're going to see some, some tailing off. But overall, it looks like a $20 ball player, and that's uh, certainly worth, uh, uh, worthwhile. I'd be curious to look around the various leagues, public leagues and the experts leagues and so forth, and see how much Dexter Fowler cost in those, uh, in those auction leagues. Uh, I wonder if anybody got a bargain, because it seems like Dexter Fowler's one of those guys who routinely goes for $17 or $18 because he's dependable at that price, and maybe the people who got him are just enjoying a small profit rather than a big bonanza. Yeah, I think you're probably right on that. I mean, it's a, he's a guy who's not going to go cheap in any league, but at the same time may not go for what he produced a year ago, uh, and it looks like he's going to hit that could easily hit that level again this year. So the kind of player produces a little bit of a profit, but not a gigantic profit. And uh, maybe some of the some owners who who drafted before he signed. Remember Fowler? Didn't he sign with Baltimore and then something went awry and he ended up going back and re-signing with Chicago or something like that? Wasn't that the story? I think so. Yeah, I think that's that's the case. So maybe maybe if you were drafting in a National League league before all that got settled, maybe uh, somebody took a shot at him at two bucks at the end of the thing, hoping that, hoping that he would re-sign and maybe they got a profit. Uh, Nick, thanks a million for talking with us, and we'll catch up with you again next week from your new home. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he covers the National League here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move on to the American League and Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be here, per usual. I guess we should start off in your neck of the woods, Jock. Uh, the Los Angeles Angels had to shuffle their bullpen with uh, closer Houston Street going on the disabled list. I guess the uh, guy who wins the battle there is Joe Smith. Yeah, Joe Smith did a pretty good job closing um, a couple of years ago, just before the Angels acquired Street, um, and he had a great year that year. In fact, it was his best year. Uh, um, he seems to be pretty decent in these situations. On the other hand, it's interesting. His his velocity is around 88%, and lately, both last year and this year, both his strikeouts and ground balls have been falling, and I, I get to watch him close up and personal. Um, he he could do just fine, but boy, I sure don't think he's as rock solid as he was in 2014. 
my first reaction when I heard the news was the same thing. Uh, they should have done this a couple of years ago. In fact, I remember when they started uh, having chances to use Smith and didn't. I wondered about it. Suppose Smith, with that 88-mile-an-hour fastball, can't cut the mustard. Who's next in line? Well, my take on that is it's going to be Fernando Salas. This is a guy who's missing more bats uh, uh, than either Street or Smith the past couple of years, and he's still doing it. Problem with Salas is he throws some fly balls that can get him in trouble home run wise. He has really good control, so he keeps his ERA in the threes. Biggest problem with the Angels, I think, as most analysts have noted, is they they just don't have a lot of depth. They they they, they don't really have a real good organization that's developing these guys. I used to think that uh, it was going to be Cam Bedrosian, but uh, and Cam had a pretty good spring. Uh, I got to watch him pitch this spring, and I was impressed. But uh, as soon as the bell rang started walking people and losing command again and now he's down in AAA so uh, I think Silas is going to be the guy it's going to be a situation I'm interested in watching over the next month. The research and all of the available information we have tells us that whoever gets the role is going to get saves the question is will, will they get uh, will they get strikeouts will they have decent ERAs and whips and that's not always the case but they will get saves because saves are relatively easy to get all you have to be is the guy in the ninth so uh, for now it looks like Joe Smith is worth a pickup but you'd have to keep a pretty close eye on him and if the league rules allow you maybe back him up by latching onto Salas as well yeah that's a good call and uh, and I think you're absolutely right in what you just said the other the other part of that is if there is an implosion for example if 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 Smith for example goes say two out of three nights blowing saves um you could be looking at a change so I mean that's the other side of that yeah, it's a very fluid situation, and uh, it's going to merit watching, of course. Fluid situations create opportunities in fantasy baseball, so we need to do that. And, Jock, speaking of opportunities in fluid situations, there's been a tsunami of pitching talent coming up into the American League this last little while and, and in the days to come. Uh, all kinds of terrific young pitchers. We've already seen Blake Snell. We've already seen Jose Barrios. We're going to see Sean Manea. Tonight, Friday night, we're going to see Michael Fulmer down the road as well. I think that may be tonight as well. And probably Mike Clevenger will be up uh, shortly in Cleveland. And there may be others. Uh, let's just go through them one by one, why don't we? Uh, let's start with Blake Snell, who had a really good start against the Yankees this past weekend, but then got immediately sent back to the minors. What's your take on Matthew St. Germain's write-up on Snell's call-up report? Well, I'm in agreement with Matthew. Uh, I think he's a number two starter. I actually think he could even be a number one. I, I watched him pitch on Saturday, and yeah, it was the smallest of samples, but uh, I was really impressed. The key is going to be for, for Snell is going to be control. Um, it's the one thing he's still getting a handle on in the minors. Uh, it's evident in his minor league track record. Still working on commanding his secondary pitches, and at times it showed on Saturday. He ran up plenty of deep counts against the Yankee hitters. That said, he always seemed to come up with a fastball in the right place that Yankee hitters just couldn't quite catch up to. He got a lot of outfield fly balls. And when he threw his secondary stuff for strikes, they were helpless. Uh, I don't see how any MLB-ready AL prospect stuff is better, and I think it's going to let him get away with some mistakes early in his career. Um, I was under the impression going into that game Saturday that his 12-6 curve was it was his most rudimentary pitch. And, and yeah, command was an issue, but boy, when he threw it and, and threw it for strikes, Yankee hitters were mesmerized by it. They just stood there and watched it land. Um, he has two outstanding pitches right now and two that look effective when he's on, so I, I'm a believer in the short run. But in the real short run, he's not in the big leagues. Uh, how long do you think Tampa Bay can keep Snell down in the minor leagues? Yeah, it's interesting. That's the key is their depth, um, it, which offhand is really as good as any other MLB teams. Uh, and so is their April schedule. Uh, uh, not sure any other team could have sent Snell back down. Uh, this is a team that whose number five starter is Erasmo Ramirez, but they're grooming him as a late reliever early on while they enjoy a, an April with a whole bunch of off days. The A's also have Matt Andres, who pitched credibly as a number five last year, and, and they're waiting for Alex Cobb to return in the second half. That said, Snell has more upside than any of them, and this is probably why Erasmo's being groomed uh, as a late-inning guy. And injuries happen, so I, I think Snell's going to be up in May, and I think he's going to be up for good. And, of course, we have to acknowledge that in all of these decisions, there's often a financial component. They don't want to bring him up early and get his clock started because he gets to uh, arbitration sooner, gets to free agency sooner. And there's a certain amount of manipulation that goes on with that, which is unfortunate, but it's a part of the game, a part of the business of the game, I should say, that may delay Blake Snell a couple of weeks, maybe four starts, five starts total. And 
as you said, they, they, the other side of the coin is that they're really good in the pitching department and they may not need him. And there's nothing wrong with grooming a guy and letting him really dominate at his previous level before they bring him up to face the, the big time in, in the big leagues. But uh, definitely Blake Snell looks like a real elite prospect. And the other one coming up right now, Jose Barrios of Minnesota called up this week by the Twins. He didn't fare as well as Snell did in his first outing, four innings against Cleveland. Jeremy Deloney of BaseballHQ.com scout team did Brios right up this past week. Did you watch the game, and how did Brios look? Yeah, I got to check out that game as well. I didn't observe it as closely as Snell's outing. I was kind of puttering around the house. Uh, my takeaway from Barrios's performance against Cleveland was that the stuff was definitely there, particularly the run on his fastball, and, and it showed up in the five strikeouts he got in four innings. Problem was his command and control weren't all there, which uh, I, I guess was a little surprising given his minor league numbers. This is a guy who's prospect profile and numbers suggest he's not going to walk many hitters, but he was constantly behind in the count all night, and once he put the first two hitters on in the fifth inning and throw, and he had thrown 93 pitches. Uh, he was gone. You know, that said, pitchers have off nights, and I suspect that this was one of those, particularly in his uh, his MLB debut. Um, um, most analysts who've seen him like him. Um, they think he also has the, the stuff to be a number two, number three starter. I saw flashes of it. Uh, he probably has a pretty good chance to succeed in Minnesota, which is a pretty good pitching venue for a fly ball guy. I watched most of the game as well. I was interested in how he would perform, and I think you're right. He looked nervous to me as well, and of course, making your first start in the big leagues, you're going to be nervous, and uh, I'd like to see him again right away. We're going to have that opportunity over the next few starts. The problem is in fantasy baseball nowadays, you can't wait. You really have to make a call in most leagues where Jose Barrios is a free agent or in the in the free agent pool. You're going to have to make a call if you haven't had to already pretty quickly. You're not going to have the luxury of waiting for three or four more starts. Now, if you have them in your reserve, maybe you're going to wait another start or two just to see which way the wind is blowing. Yeah, you're right. Um, and, and the thing that Barrios does have over Snell immediately right now, I think, is is opportunity. If you look down the uh, the Twins rotation, there's nothing too impressive there. You got Tommy Malone. Um, Ricky Nolasco is picking, pitching better than we, than we thought he was. Irvin Santana is a little uh, banged up right now. Um, he could, with a few good starts, he could insert himself and stay in that rotation for a while. Minnesota also made another move after Glenn Perkins went on the uh, DL, and they called up Alex Meyer, who used to be a starting pitching prospect, never quite got his, his control under control, shall we say. He was moved to the pen last year in AAA, did a little better. Then he was back in the AAA rotation, and he's been really good. Now they've recalled him. Is he uh, going to be a rotation-type guy? Is that what they're looking at? Or is he going to be uh, bullpen insurance in case the uh, post-Glenn Perkins era doesn't work out as well as they hope? You know, this one's a mystery to me. Um, I actually, believe it or not, picked up Myers two, two nights in our waiver pool before he was recalled. And the reason I picked him up was I looked at his first three games in AAA and they were using him as a starter again. And he wasn't walking anybody. He, I think he has four walks in something like uh, 17, 19 innings right now. And uh, he's still whipping guys. He, this is a, a one-time near elite prospect that I think both you and I saw in the Arizona Fall League. He's now 26. Um, and, and as you've noted, he's, he's, his prospect status faded, faded because he's never been able to get his control under wraps. And of course, as we both know, guys that tall, he's 6'9", have difficulty keeping their mechanics in sync, and sometimes they never resolve that last piece. Yet occasionally, sometimes they can turn into Randy Johnson, and this is a guy still throwing in triple digits, which is the intriguing thing about Myers, is, is that he still has such velocity, and he was off to this great start in, in AAA. So the upside is still there. The, the real question is, what will Minnesota do with him, like you said? And, and this is the part I don't understand, since they called him up on Monday, and Myers sat ever since. You'd think that when you have a high-maintenance high guy like Myers seemingly finding a groove, you wouldn't want to call him up to sit on the bench and become rusty. So this one has me scratching my head a little bit. Uh, Steven, Nick Rand and you, I understand, both play in big keeper leagues, and you both have Myers. Uh, that's a indication when two guys like you are in on Myers, maybe we should be too. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's it's a tr interesting. Like I said, I picked him up just before his call up, just on a hunch. Stephen picked him up uh, just last night, even after his inactivity. So, despite the way the Twins seem to be handling him and our questions about it, uh, this is a guy who has some upside, and there's definitely consensus there between Stephen and I. 
One other uh, call-up that's going to be, uh, I believe he's scheduled for Friday night, and I have him on my uh, tout team, Sean Manea, a real hard-throwing left-hander in the Oakland organization. Uh, we both saw Sean Manea at the Arizona Fall League, and he looked really good getting swings and misses, which is a really good thing for a young pitcher to be able to do. He's going to be pitching against Houston, however. They're a big strikeout team, but they're also a very big run-scoring team, so that's it seems like a bit of a risk. Uh, Nick Richards covered the Sean Manea call-up for BaseballHQ.com. What's going on here? Well, first off, Manea is taking um, Eric Surkamp's rotation spot, which isn't surprising. Surkamp was a soft-tossing lefty who was filling in for Oakland while they were having their early uh, rotation problems this spring, and he just wasn't very impressive. Jesse Hahn was actually the initial choice to come back to Oakland for this spot, but uh, he had a poor spring, and now he's dealing with blister issues at this point in time, and, and Manaya's been very good in his first few outings in, uh, in AAA. Now, I like him, and I think he has the stuff and skill to succeed at the MLB level in the long run. My only concern about him is in the short run and about the injuries that seem to follow him around. He had hip surgery shortly after being drafted in 2013. He strained a groin last year that limited, limited him to 74 innings. Um, and he only has 61 innings pitched in the high minors, so he's a little bit short on experience. I really wonder whether he has the stamina to go six, seven innings a start at the MLB level uh, over a long period of time now. His professional high has been 122 innings in 2014, so even with his skill, he has a little bit to prove. And finally, uh, Jock in Detroit, another prospect, Michael Fulmer, is going to be called up to replace Shane Green, who's uh, injured in the Tiger rotation. Nick Richards covered this as well for BaseballHQ.com's Minor Leagues Call-Ups report. What about Michael Fulmer? Yeah, this is, this is one guy of all these guys we're talking about. I haven't followed too closely, uh, but he was a first-round pick by the Mets 2010. Came to Detroit in the Cespedes deal. He has good size, good stuff. Mid-rotation upside. I know Nick likes him a lot. Nick Richards, who wrote him up uh, for us. Keith Law over at ESPN likes him. Occasionally, you, you have to go on others' observations, and, and you look at the stats. Uh, he's another guy with uh, not a lot of high minors experience, 118 innings in AA, just 15 in AAA this year. But he has good control, and he's whiffed over a batter an inning in AAA so far, which, uh, along with a ground ball tilt, uh, gives him a shot in Detroit. They have Dan, Daniel Norris as well, building up some stamina. Do we keep an eye on him if Fulmer needs a little more seasoning? Yeah, absolutely. Daniel Norris was a was a premium prospect a couple of years ago before the uh, the injuries hit him, and his first year in uh, in the majors was was a little bit mediocre, which is kind of expected for a guy as rushed as fast as he was, and who was I think twenty one or twenty two years old when he made his MLB debut. And he's definitely a guy to watch if uh, if Fulmer needs more time. I think uh, once he gets his strength and stamina back, he's a guy who could succeed fairly quickly in the majors. And finally, Jock, uh, just before I do let you go, uh, we have one more candidate who might be up before too long, Mike Clevenger in Cleveland. Cody Anderson got demoted. The Tribe are going to need a number 5 starter by early May. Uh, BaseballHQ.com analyst Mike Shears looked at this situation in his playing time tomorrow space covering the American League Central. What's the, what's the scoop on Mike Clevenger? Yeah, Clevenger was a guy I followed when he was drafted by the Angels, and I was irritated that they traded him. They they uh, they traded him for uh, Vinny Pastana, who is now um, nowhere to be found. Uh, Clevenger had Tommy John surgery. He he came out of that funk last year. Uh, finished very strongly. Um, this is a guy I think who could who actually has number three upside, and and he should be on sleeper list because I think he's going to be pitching in Cleveland uh, come early May. Jock, thanks a million for helping us out. This is an exciting time when all these young players come up that really have a good chance to be impressive, helpful, not just for their big league teams, but for fantasy teams lucky enough to have them. But there's a hint of risk that makes it a little bit more exciting. Yeah, absolutely. It's like you said, PD. you got to work off small samples and you got to take a chance because if you don't, somebody else will. And these are the kind of guys that if they surprise to the upside, they can win fantasy championships. Jock Thompson is BaseballHQ.com's Director of News and Analysis and a Speculator Columnist at the site, and he covers player news from the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. We'll take a quick break, be back in just a second with our Baseball HQ commentaries, coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Take me out to the ball game, take me out with the crowd, buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack. I don't care if I never get back, let me root 
Root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Yes, it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. We have our commentaries coming up, but first let me tell you about BaseballHQ.com and why we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long with content across a wide range of great information. A few examples from this week, those early surprises columns you heard earlier in the show in the Batting and Starting Pitcher Buyer's Guides by Stephen Nickrand. Co-General Manager Ray Murphy in the General Manager's Office column revisits a Baseball HQ standby, the May Day Deal, where Baseball HQ swaps 10 underperforming players for 10 overperformers and then checks later on in the year to see if it's still true, as it used to be, that underperformers always win those trades. Brian Rudds has a Facts and Flukes performance validation column looking at Matt Carpenter's power surge, Jonathan Papelbon's reliability, and much more. During the season, BaseballHQ.com also has updated analysis of all the latest news. We have matchups reports and a daily fantasy dashboard. There's full coverage of potential roster changes in playing time tomorrow. And, of course, we have our extensive minor league scouting. Then, there are the projections and other roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your league and daily fantasy baseball. And it's all only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is BaseballHQ.com. Time now for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we have frequent flyers, our weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes. And leading off, it's our playing time segment where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing some at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at speculating on a new starting outfield in Arizona, as well as the long-lost Mike Zunino in Seattle. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. A.J. Pollock was supposed to be Arizona's everyday center fielder entering 2016 until a nasty broken elbow ended his season before it began. Arizona turned to a combo of Socrates Brito and Chris Owings to fill the void in center. Brito has since struggled and is currently playing in the minors in Reno, while Owings has seen the lion's share of playing time in center this season. Owings has never really played center professionally until a couple of weeks ago, and while he's hitting 270 through 63 at-bats, Owings continues to show awful plate skills and no pop with the bat. Owings' speed is useful, but his shaky skills suggest Arizona might be looking at other options in center field. Everyday right fielder David Peralta has recently seen a few games in center field, which is an interesting tidbit given that Arizona has a pair of hitters that they could slot into the lineup on a regular basis in Brandon Drury or Peter O'Brien in one of the corners. Drury has played eight games in the corner outfield and is off to a strong start with close to a 300 batting average and a pair of homers in nearly 60 at-bats. Our minor league staff ranked Drury the number four prospect in Arizona's system thanks to his excellent plate approach. And while Drury projects to be a second or third baseman long term, it's becoming clear that Arizona wants to get the 23-year-old's bat in the lineup. Peter O'Brien, meanwhile, is mashing the ball at AAA Reno with seven homers in his first 70 at-bats. His batting average is somehow higher than his on-base percentage, certainly an early season oddity, but it shows that with just one walk and 20 strikeouts so far this year, O'Brien has a lot of work to do if he wants to avoid struggles against MLB pitching. Keep an eye out for David Peralta over Chris Owings in center field in the desert. If this becomes a regular occurrence, Brandon Drury or Peter O'Brien suddenly become candidates for regular playing time in right field, and each hitter offers different avenues for profit this season. To the AL, we go to Seattle, where Mike Zanino has made a couple appearances on BaseballHQ.com this week. First in Alec Dopp's minor league watch list column, and later in Jock Thompson's AL West playing time column. Zanino, who was once a top prospect in Seattle's system, has been somewhat of, of a forgotten man thanks to a pair of awful performances in the majors in 2014 and 2015. Zanino has great power, but he's traditionally struck out far too often, and he's had major issues against breaking balls. In 
2016, even though it's still very early, Zunino, Zunino has already hit seven homers with just 10 strikeouts over 63 at-bats in AAA. He's hitting 413 with a 450 on base over that time. Seattle's new front office has hinted that they want to keep Zunino down a bit longer to further hone those plate skills, but the early results are encouraging, and with only Chris Iannetta and Steve Clevenger in the way in Seattle, we could see Zunino back up soon. We can't completely change Zunino's outlook after just one month of solid minor league production, but the early returns combined with his prospect pedigree suggest that Zunino is quickly turning into an AL-only flyer, especially in two-catcher leagues. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every Tuesday. Now it's time for our frequent flyers commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyers are Oswaldo Arcia, outfielder in Minnesota, and Detroit starting pitcher Michael Fulmer. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. What player finished his rookie season in 2013 with more home runs than these other notable rookies of 2013? Nolan Arenado, Will Myers, A.J. Pollock, and Marcelo Zuna yet went undrafted in most leagues this season? We'll give you a hint. He followed up his successful 2013 rookie season by hitting more home runs than Paul Goldschmidt, Bryce Harper, Nolan Arenado, again, and Mark Trumbo in 2014. Yet, he's one of two players, a hitter and a pitcher, whom we'll profile this week that may still be available on your waiver wire, beginning with, did you guess it, Minnesota's 24-year-old and soon-to-be 25-year-old on May 9th, outfielder Oswaldo Arcia. That's right, Oswaldo Arcia outslugged a pretty impressive group, including several 2016 first-round draft picks like Nolan Arenado in both 2013 and 2014. So what happened in 2015? Nothing. That's the problem. After belting 20 home runs at the major league level in 2014, Oswaldo Arcia struggled mightily, only hitting 12 home runs at AAA in 2015. 12! as we like to say, once a player displays a skill, he owns it, as Waldo Arcia owns legitimate power if he can improve his strike zone judgment. Besides owning several home runs, Oswaldo Arcia also owns a career batting eye ratio of 22, where we look for at least 50 to indicate a decent batting average. In fact, the percentage plays we've created at BaseballHQ.com suggests that hitters with a batting eye ratio of less than 26 have only a 7% chance of hitting above 300 for the season. More importantly, our percentage plays indicate that Oswaldo Arcia has only a 39% chance of batting above 250. That's why it's important to remember that Oswaldo Arcia, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots, who may be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. However, with three home runs and only 12 games and a linear weighted power index of 159 so far for 2016, Oswaldo Arcia quietly qualifies among the slugging elite. Speaking of quiet performances, have you heard about what Detroit's Michael Fulmer has done in the minors this season? After making his AAA debut on April 12th, where he struck out seven in five and two-thirds innings, Michael Fulmer followed that debut up by striking out another seven batters at his next start. Plus, he's only allowed one earned run through his first two AAA starts for a .82 ERA. Not bad. But then, his third start, Michael Fulmer served up three home runs, allowing six earned runs total, effectively raising his ERA to 4.11. On a positive note, Michael Fulmer struck out six in only four and one-third innings of work that night, bringing his total to 20 strikeouts and only 15.1 innings pitch this season. That translates to a DOM of 11.74, well above the DOM of 7 we use to identify elite pitchers. In fact, Michael Fulmer's exceptional performance has earned him a start in the big leagues, and maybe this is the start of something big. After all, wasn't Michael Fulmer, a former New York Mets prospect, the centerpiece of the trade between the Tigers and the Mets that sent Ioannis Cespedes to New York last season? And we know how a few of those Mets pitchers have turned out so far. Matt Harvey, Noah Syndergaard, Jacob deGrom, and Steven Matz. Wait! 
We're not really comparing those Mets superstars to Michael Fulmer, are we? No, not at all. We're just saying that the Mets have a track record for developing talented pitchers. Realistically, with only three games at AAA under his belt, Michael Fulmer's Major League debut is probably only a spot start. Then again, Michael Fulmer might be worth a longer look. He is one of our top 75 impact prospects for 2016. We currently have Michael Fulmer projected at, with a 380 XERA for 2016 and a 7.1 DOM, a 3.0 command ratio, at 2.4 control rate, pointing to elite skills. Of course, there will be growing pains. Even so, the potential is tantalizing for both Oswaldo Garcia and Michael Fulmer, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for our weekend pitcher matchups report. We've adjusted the scale. Matchups are now rated on a scale that's centered on zero. Pitchers rated at 1.00 or higher are strong bets, while those under minus 1.00 are strong sits. In between, well, you'll have to gauge that based on your own risk tolerance. Here with a look at Saturday's American League matchup, pitting the Yankees right-hander Michael Pineda at Fenway against the red-hot righty Rick Porcello of the Red Sox, and Sunday's battle of the right-handers Max Scherzer of Washington at Carlos Martinez of St. Louis, and more weekend matchups, is BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. Even the short-scheduled Cleveland Indians will have played 20 games by the time you hear this report, and many teams' top starters will have had four or five outings. We're still using 2015 performance indicators for another week or two before we have large enough sample sizes to use 2016 data for our pitcher matchup ratings. But remember, we have retroactively recalculated all 2015 PQS scores to reflect our new 2016 PQS criteria. And we continue to adjust our matchup rating recommendation thresholds to account for that change. We'll be more definitive in a couple of weeks, but for now, we are using matchup ratings of 1 or above for recommended starts, minus 1 or below for recommended sits, and ratings between minus 1 and plus 1 for wild card or risk reward choices. That's changed from a week ago when we mentioned that you can hear more about the new criteria from BaseballHQ.com co-GM Ray Murphy on the April 15 podcast or read all the details through the links provided in any recent Daily Matchups column on the site. Now let's look at one weekend matchup for each day in each league. In the American League, it'll be the Yankees' young right-hander Michael Pineda versus the Red Sox' young right-hander Rick Porcello at hitter-friendly Fenway Park on Saturday and Kansas City's Ian Kennedy in pitcher-friendly Safeco Field to face the Mariners' young right-hander Taiwan Walker on Sunday. In the National League, it'll be the Padres' young right-hander Colin Ray visiting pitcher-friendly Chavez Ravine and the Dodgers' young right-hander Ross Stripling on Saturday. And the Nats' Max Scherzer facing the Cards' young right-hander Carlos Martinez at pitcher-friendly Bush Stadium on Sunday. Starting in the AL on Saturday, yes, Fenway is generally a hitter-friendly park, except for home runs by left-handed batters, which are suppressed by 30%. And imagine what that figure will be after David Ortiz retires. So if either team loads up its lineup with lefties, don't necessarily be afraid of a more rugged outing for either young right-hander. Both starters' matchup ratings are in the wild-card risk-reward range, with Porcello's plus 054 deservedly topping Pineda's minus 027. Pineda's performance in the early going this season has been inconsistent, with two PQS threes in which he allowed only two earned runs in six innings pitched each, sandwiched between two PQS twos in which he allowed six and seven earned runs on three and four home runs, respectively. A closer look shows that he's been plagued by an unlucky trifecta, a hit rate of 40%, a strand rate of 64%, and a home run per fly ball rate of 27%. Pineda has an expected ERA of 345 and a BPV of 159. Porcello has the stronger PQS log of 2, 4, 4, and 5. His expected ERA is 271 and his base performance value is 170. And he's had a bit of good luck on his side, with a hit rate of 25% and a strand rate of 74%. The reason Porcello has the edge over Pineda is more because of their teams than their likely individual performances. 
The Yankees rank 20th or worse in overall one-loss record, road record, record versus right-handers, record against teams over 500, runs scored, runs against, and run differential. The Red Sox are in the top 12 of all their reciprocal categories, except runs against. In the American League on Sunday, Kansas City's Ian Kennedy tangles with Seattle's Taiwan Walker at Safeco Field. Again, both pitchers' matchup ratings fall in the wild card or risk-reward range. Walker has the plus with an 0.24, and Kennedy has the minus with a negative 0.30. Kennedy came up with a clunker PQS Disaster Zero in his most recent outing on the road against the Angels, but he had two fives and a four prior to that. He has an expected ERA of 3.82 and a base performance value of 71. Taiwan Walker's PQS log looks more like a ladder, going one, two, four, five. He struck out 11 free-swinging Astros in his most recent start and has gone at least six innings and allowed no more than two earned runs in each of his outings. Walker's expected ERA is 260 and his BPV is 166. The M's score a run more per game than the Royals while allowing nearly the same number. And Seattle has done better than KC versus right-handers so far this season. So Walker is certainly worth the nod over Kennedy. But the risk comes from his strand rate of 87% and a first pitch strike rate of only 55%. Switching over to the National League this weekend, let's start with the Saturday contest between the Padres' young right-hander Colin Ray against the Dodgers' young right-hander Ross Stripling. Dodger Stadium is the mirror image of Fenway Park. It's pitcher-friendly except for left-handed batters' home runs, which are enhanced by 15%. That matters more to you if you have some left-handed batters to play there, because this is our all-avoid pitcher matchup for the weekend. Ray has a matchup rating of minus 296, and Stripling has a matchup rating of minus 217. Those both would have been strong sits even with last year's PQS criteria and matchup ratings. Ray has 10 major league starts and has posted four PQS disasters and one PQS dominant effort, which was last year against the Dodgers. This season, he's continued to be an enigma. He has 10 walks in 21 innings pitched, but a fine first pitch K rate of 67%. He has an expected ERA of 422, but an unlucky hit rate of 37%. No matter, he's pitching for one of the worst teams in Major League Baseball. The Patsy Padres are no better than 27th in all relevant categories but one, in which they are 20th. The Dodgers are 12th or better in all relevant categories but one, in which they are 16th. Controversial removal from his no-hitter notwithstanding, Stripling still has the same XERA as Ray at 422 and a worse BPV of 33 compared with Ray's 54. In 22 innings pitched, Stripling has 16 strikeouts and 10 walks. His past two starts were PQS disasters against the Braves and the Marlins. This game may end well for LA, but not for either starting pitcher. And for our final matchup rating this weekend, we have the Nats match Scherzer with a matchup rating of 076, facing our final young right-hander, the Cards Carlos Martinez, with a matchup rating of minus 036 at Bush Stadium in St. Louis on Sunday. These two teams are in the top 10 for most categories, so let's look at where there is some separation. St. Louis is scoring more runs per game than any other team at 6.5. Washington ranks 16th and is scoring 4.1 runs per game. But Washington ranks second in runs against per game at 2.6, and Seattle ranks 14th at 4.2 runs allowed per game. So even though they rank 2 and 3 in run differential, the Cardinals' 2.3 run differential outshines the Nationals' 1.5 run differential. On a team basis, let's give St. Louis a slight advantage. Now what about the pitchers? Scherzer hasn't faced the cards yet this season, but put up a PQS 2 and a PQS 4 against them last year. Martinez hasn't faced the Nationals this season or last. He's been lights out in his four starts so far, averaging seven innings, five strikeouts, and two walks per start. But his expected ERA is 372, and his BPV is 72, because his hit rate is 19% and his strand rate is 82%. Scherzer has been a bit Unscherzer-like so far, with two PQS dominant starts in his first three efforts, followed by two PQS disaster outings. In 31 innings pitched, his 30 strikeouts are fine, but the 12 walks were unexpected. His hit rate, strand rate, and velocity are all normal, and his first pitch strike rate is in line with his career numbers. But last year's first pitch strike rate of 71% was a clear outlier, as his previous four-year average was 62.5. 
But that just means our expectations may be a little high. It's still too early to nitpick. Take the Max train to this game, but be willing to take a risk with Martinez, too. There'll be no need for you to cry mayday, mayday this weekend if you maximize your pitching points by starting Porcello, Walker, and Scherzer, sitting Kennedy, Ray, and Stripling, and choosing your wild cards wisely from Pineda and Martinez. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a BaseballHQ.com pitcher matchups analyst. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. This week, I want to talk about daily fantasy baseball, bizarro style. Okay, listen up. I have this idea. I call it Bizarro Daily Fantasy Baseball, or BDFB for short. For those of you who didn't waste your youth reading Superman comic books, the Bizarro were sort of chalk-white, Frankensteinish mirror clones who said and did things just the opposite of how we humans would say them and do them. Also, they were kind of dumb and mean. Since the point of real DFS is to build a roster of players with the best stats, BDFB owners will try to build rosters with the worst stats. At last, coveted roster slots for Alcides Escobar and Ian Desmond. At last, the chance to bolster a rotation with Alfredo Simon or Jared Weaver. Somebody call the New York Attorney General's office. But seriously, it could be lots of fun once in a while to have a team full of players to root against. It could be fun to have a homer be bad for your hitter but good for your pitcher, and the reverse be true for a strikeout. might be interesting to watch a game with your pals, and with your hitter up... Be able to punch the air with a resounding yes when he hits into the double play. Once I had hatched this duckling of an idea, I had to work out the details. This had the added advantage of giving me something to do while I was avoiding doing my tax returns, which are due here in Canada on May 2nd. I wanted the BDFB structure to resemble DFS in its relative simplicity. One thing I really like about Daily Fantasy is that all the scoring is based on the kind of plays we can see quickly in a box score or while watching or listening to a game. A baseball game full of cheers and groans. That's what we're looking for. I started with the batters. After quite a bit of jiggling and wiggling and adjusting on my Excel spreadsheet, I built the scoring on a foundation of outs made because that's the primary way a batter cannot help his team. So I gave each hitter three points per out made, excluding sacrifice bunts and sacrifice flies, which are at least modestly helpful to the offense. I also awarded points for other obvious bad, meaning good, outcomes, with added points for killing rallies. Batter would get a point for striking out, and three points for being caught stealing or grounding into a double play. Like non-Bizarro Daily Fantasy, I also wanted to deduct points for good, meaning bad, hitter outcomes. Minus one for singles and walks. Minus two for doubles, runs, and RBI. Minus three for triples and stolen bases. And minus four for home runs. The pitching side is similar. It has both good, meaning bad, outcomes that add points, and bad, meaning good, outcomes that subtract. So pitchers get a point per inning pitched, per hit, per home run, and per walk. They get two points for allowing each earned run, and two for taking a loss. They also get half a point each for a hit-by-pitch, balk, or wild pitch, and they lose two points for getting a win and for each strikeout. The aim of scoring value was to end up with player scores that would look kind of like regular DFS outcomes, at least not orders of magnitude different. And in fact, the scores ended up with good, meaning bad, hitters generating about 8 points per game, with lows around minus 7 and highs in the low 20s. That seems to be pretty DFS-ish to me. The average good, meaning bad, pitcher scored around 13 points per start. We only allow starters in bizarro fantasy daily baseball, with lows around minus 3 points and highs up around 30. Again, that's pretty close to regular daily fantasy. As a check, I picked out a reliably good, meaning bad, hitter, Alcides Escobar, and a reliably good, meaning bad, pitcher, in Jared Weaver. I also picked out a generally bad, meaning good, hitter, Bryce Harper, and a bad, meaning good, pitcher, in Max Scherzer. Using the 2015 game logs, the results seemed to scale pretty reasonably. Escobar had a median per game score of 8 points, with half his games in the range of 8 to 17. 
He had positive points in 85% of his games, including a massive plus 25 in a memorable disaster where he went 0 for 6 with a strikeout and two grounding into double plays. Attaway Alcides. His low score was a minus 7 in the last game of the season when he went 2 for 4 with a walk, 2 runs and 3 RBI. Harper's median game score was 3 points and half his games were in the range of minus 3 to 5. His high was 16 when he went 0 for 5 with a strikeout. His low was minus 24, 3 for 4 with 3 home runs, 3 runs scored and 5 RBI. Weaver's median game score was a solid 13 points. Half his games fell in the range of 10 to 21. His peak performance was 30.5, a delightful disaster of six innings, eight earned runs, nine hits, and four walks. Throw in a home run and a hit by pitch, and only one strikeout. Remarkably, he won that game, and he cost his bizarro owner a further two points. His low game for the year was a minus 2.5. It was his only negative score for the season. Jared Weaver is a bizarro ace. Scherzer's median game was 0.5. Half his games were in the range of minus 3.5 to just plus 1. His low score was a minus 27. Remember that opening day no-hitter with 17 strikeouts? His high game was plus 14. His only really bad game of the year, a three-inning loss with seven hits, including two homers, a hit by pitch, and a wild pitch, and just three strikeouts. 18 of Scherzer's 33 starts were negative points. Figuring out the scoring from 2015 also involved racking up every hitter over 150 plate appearances and every pitcher who had at least 7 starts in 30 innings, then sorting them by overall bizarro points per game. That's how I found Escobar and Weaver as solid bizarro studs, although watching them play was a powerful clue. If you're wondering about the salaries for players and that sort of thing, we'll have to wait until one of the big DFS companies sends me a big fat check. In the meantime, I certainly don't want to have any dealings with the New York State Attorney General's office. Finally, in those overall lists, I was interested to see some of the other names from the tops and bottoms, because they surprised me. I mean, you see Alcides Escobar or Mike Zanino on a list of hitters who ring up plenty of bad plate appearances, you don't put in a call to Ripley's Believe It or Not. But if you see Jacoby Ellsbury on that list, or Jan Gomes, you might be at least a little flummoxed. Among the top 10 hitters after Escobar on the list were Ellsbury, Jean Segura, Gomes, Jose Reyes, Gerardo Parra, Zunino, Ian Desmond, J.J. Hardy, and Angel Pagan. There's some names there that you might have on your actual rosters. Among the bottom hitters, that is the ones who didn't score a lot of bad points, Taylor Featherston, Andres Blanco, Harper, Andrew Romine, J.B. Shuck, Ezekiel Carrera, Ryan Rayburn, Alejandro Diaz, Clint Robinson, Dustin Ackley, David Murphy, Justin Smoke, and Chris Young. On the pitcher side, seeing Alfredo Simon or Shane Green or Jason Marquis among the highest scoring pitchers, that is, the ones who did the worst, probably wouldn't raise many eyebrows. But Johnny Cueto and Jeff Samarja? They just might. Among the top scorers as well, Kyle Kendrick, Kyle Lobstein, Willie Peralta, Dylan G, Jeremy Guthrie, Mike Leak, Mike Pelfrey, no surprise there, right? Ivan Nova, and John Danks. And the 10 lowest scoring pitchers is like the Cy Young ballot. Clayton Kershaw, Jake Arrieta, Max Scherzer, Jose Fernandez, Chris Sale, Zach Greinke, Steven Strasburg, Jacob deGrom, and a couple of surprises, Jay Happ and Drew Smiley. Makes me glad I got Happ in AL Tout and makes me wish I'd bid harder on Smiley. So go start a bizarro daily fantasy baseball league with your friends. And have fun picking your bums. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, the Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 29th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 22 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com because it's our people who make it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our playing time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our frequent flyers commentator was Alex Becky. And our pitcher matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt. 
I hope you enjoyed Master Notes this week, and I always hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with the first full Friday edition of Baseball HQ Radio and our Friday feature guest expert will be a first-timer, Mike Podhorzer of Fangraphs.com. That's the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.